think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent. There's a thousand different voices that nobody hears. We're looking at a human being, and there's life story. 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 Connection to the people we don't know that live near us. An Elevated Denver starts now. Welcome back to the Elevated Denver podcast, where we're bringing key topics and stories about homelessness to light. Today, we're bringing you an interview with Dr. Pilar Ingle, who studies systemic inequities in healthcare for individuals living in poverty with chronic and life-limiting illness. We interviewed Pilar and brother J.P. Hall, who founded Rocky Mountain Refuge, an organization providing end-of-life care so that unhoused individuals can experience a dignified death. I'm here with Leanne, Jana, and Myra, through the episode, you'll hear Jana and Myra asking our guests questions and Leanne tying some threads together through the narration. Stay with us. Before we start, we want to let you know that we went through an informed consent process with everyone we interviewed. And before airing each of these episodes, we sent the recording to the interviewees to make sure that they were still comfortable with us sharing their story. I want to acknowledge that parts may be triggering for some listeners. If so, please take care. Death and dying are heavy topics, and we know it may be hard for some of you to listen to this, but they're topics we can't ignore, especially for those living on the streets who are at increased risk of chronic and terminal illness. Early on, we learned about a program called Rocky Mountain Refuge that was providing hospice-like care for the very individuals who've been abandoned by our system and society. Rocky Mountain Refuge stepped in to provide dignified care so that individuals aren't just dying on the streets. We talked with Brother J.P. Hall, a Gregorian friar committed to working with folks on the margins and founder of Rocky Mountain Refuge. We also talked with Pilar Engel, who at the time of the interview was a Ph.D. candidate in social work, researching end-of-life and palliative care for folks with chronic and serious illness. They talked to us about why the refuge and end-of-life care for the unhoused is so important here in Denver. There's various kinds of shelters around the city, but there isn't a shelter for people to get hospice care. And that's what we do at the Rocky Mountain Refuge. We are a specialized shelter to enable unhoused people to receive hospice care because shelters can't do the round-the-clock, 24-7 custodial family-style care that we do. And hospices, they're not, they're not shelters. They, they struggle a lot to help people who are living on the streets. Making sure they have proper care is extremely difficult for the hospice organizations. What they need is a place for it to happen, and that's what we do. We provide temporary housing for folks to receive the hospice care that they need. We got started about a little over five years ago. Uh, a friend of mine was doing some chaplaincy work at a local medical facility, and she realized that this person was actively dying. 
And she went in his room and started checking into things and realized that he was a person experiencing homelessness. And there was no one to be with him. He was just in a dark room with beeping machines. And so she went and stayed with him and held his hand and prayed with him as he transitioned that night. The next day, she messaged me and asked me, where do homeless people die? And I said, well, they, they die where they live. They die on the sidewalk, they die under bridges. Brother J.P. and Pilar believe that all people deserve to die with dignity, not just those who have homes. Far too many of our unhoused neighbors don't have that option. The Rocky Mountain Refuge is one of a handful of nonprofits across the country that are working to change that by offering hospice services to unhoused individuals. About 25% of unhoused people die in medical facilities, which is by far the most expensive possible way for the state of Colorado taxpayers. That is by far the most expensive. About 39% die on the streets. There's another percentage, I think it's around 14 or 15 percent, that die in hotels or motels. And that's a hotel or motel that is provided by friends, family, or hospice agencies often rent. In, in, in their struggle to take care of an unhoused person, they will sometimes rent a hotel room to keep them in it to try to take care of them because one of the biggest problems with hospice care is it needs a place to occur. It needs a place for the medical people to take care of the person and to store the medications. Rocky Mountain Refuge has served 21 individuals since they opened their doors in early 2022. Brother JP shared with us a story of one of the individuals they've served. We had a, an individual who asked that this story be told. She said, people need to know this occurred. She came to us, and she was feisty. She was one of our longest-term residents. She flirted with all the guys up and down the hallway. She was a hoot. She really was. But she had had serious abdominal cancer, and she was in terrible, terrible pain. And for over a year, she had been locked in a pattern she would be in unmanaged pain, would get to the point she couldn't stand it anymore. Her husband would take her to the emergency room. She would be admitted to the hospital. The hospital would, you know, try to take care of her a little bit, and they would get her pain under control. And then they would give her medications to manage her pain, and she would be discharged back onto the street. When she was back on the street, she would take too much because she was hurting, or somebody would steal it. One of her friends took it and sold some of it once. The medication would disappear too soon, and she would be back in unmanaged pain, back in the hospital, the cycle would repeat, repeat. And this went on for over a year. When she came to us, she stayed here um, a little over a month. She never went back to the hospital. She was very comfortable. She was happy to be here. She took her medications just as the doctor ordered, but she was well taken care of, and she died in peace here the way she wanted to go. At the time of this interview, 
Pilar was working on her doctoral dissertation on end-of-life care for people experiencing homelessness in Colorado. The paper aimed to understand what resources are available and what is the best path forward. She's found a host of issues that need to be addressed to provide better care for the unhoused. As you just heard, palliative, end-of-life care often takes place in the home. What happens when someone doesn't have a home? To add some context, so Brother JP has mentioned a couple of things around hospice care where you need a place for it to happen and really relying on that family and custodial care for the 24-hour around-the-clock care. And what that means is that you need to have somebody in your life, whether that is a spouse or a loved one or a family member who is available to help you, especially if you need more care during the day. And we know that that can be a huge financial burden on folks who can't take the time off of work. It's also really hard to take care of somebody who's really sick. It takes a lot of strength if they need help transitioning from a chair to a bed to the toilet. So we just know that this is all around very hard. Hospice often happens at home, but sometimes that's not an option. And so then the difficulty becomes you have to pay for the extra room and board at a nursing facility or another long-term care facility. So could you just expand on if someone doesn't have a home or a permanent home, what does that do to their options for hospice and life care? If you have long-term care Medicaid, that will pay for the room and board in a nursing facility. However, it's really challenging to get the paperwork in order. It's a long process, it's a tedious process. And so if you're somebody who is experiencing crises on a day-to-day basis, that becomes a real challenge. And oftentimes by the time you really need to find a place, you might die before that paperwork comes into place. This is why Rocky Mountain Refuge is so important and why the work that Brother JP and the folks at Rocky Mountain Refuge, the work that they're doing is essential because we don't really have the structures in place. Sometimes charity hospice funds that nonprofit hospice organizations have, they can sometimes find placement in motels, but those are limited funds. We don't have unlimited resources to find somebody a place to stay to receive hospice care. When you're on hospice, basically you have six months. And it often takes longer than that to get the, the, the benefit she was talking about. And skilled nursing homes, if you are admitted to one of those and your paperwork doesn't get completed before you pass, they don't get any reimbursement for the time you were there, therefore, they've learned very carefully about this and most of them won't take anybody if, you, if they're, if they're Medicare, Medicaid pending because they know that they'll, they won't get paid. So that's why we're here. We're, this is the gap we're trying to fill. Multiple systems are failing folks who are at increased risk of chronic and terminal illness. There are many people dying on the streets, and at least some have been able to do it with the care and support of Rocky Mountain Refuge. We'll be right back. This is Jonna from Elevated Denver. We're close to wrapping up season two. If you've found this podcast enlightening or educational, think about donating. There's a link right on our webpage 
and your donation is tax deductible. We're not just working on the podcast. We're working to create innovative solutions to this complex issue that are rooted in the stories and expertise of those who've experienced homelessness. Come to our website to find out more about the model we are building and how you can get involved. Now, back to the episode. It's admittedly challenging to count the number of chronically ill individuals who are living on the streets, but we do know that the number of unhoused individuals dying has continued to increase over the past several years. The Colorado Sun recently reported 166 deaths among the unhoused between January and July 2023. Part of that is due to the fentanyl opioid crisis, but there are many who are dying of disease. The need for end-of-life care like Rocky Mountain Refuge provides is only increasing, but it's becoming harder for the refuge to serve people in Denver. They estimate that their services cost about $6,000 per week per patient. The organization has had to shut down twice in the last year because it lacked funding. But Rocky Mountain Refuge provides a very important service, especially for people like Jane, the feisty patient Brother JP mentioned earlier. That's not her real name, but we'll just call her Jane. So a hospital, a hospital social worker contacted the Rocky Mountain Refuge and said they had this person here who they were wanting to discharge. This is one of her discharges. And at this point, she had gotten to the point where she was probably going to be really difficult to live on the street. So her husband of 19 years was not going to be able to take care of her. So what they did is they called us. We had her transported from the hospital here. And once she settled in, basically a day would start with... In the morning, it's breakfast time. So the caregiver who's on duty would ask her, what do you want for breakfast? Do you want, or do you want breakfast? The morning medications would be administered probably about that time the, uh, or so. Then after breakfast, there might be a situation where a urine bag would have to be emptied or something like that. Or maybe this particular individual had a colostomy bag uh, that may have needed to be emptied. But she had a CNA would come three times a week. Some of the hospices provide, uh, they provide CNAs more often than they provide nurses, but nurses only usually come about once or twice a week. Twice if you're lucky, but usually about once. And then the CNAs would come. She was very specific about her CNAs. (laughs) She wanted certain ones and not other ones. Basically, she didn't want a male CNA. She wanted a female. And, which is understandable. And so the CNA would come and bathe her. After that was all done, she might be tired and want to nap. And then there would be at lunchtime, depending on the day. So we'd either go get her lunch or not. All this time, medications being given to her on, on a timed schedule that the hospice requires. She, she was a smoker, so we would put her in the transport chair and take her out to the smoking facility. This is where she flirted with the guys and smoke her cigarette and all this kind of stuff. She was such a hoot. And she loved old classic rock and she would play that and we would, the caregivers would hold her hands and she would dance to the oldies and all this kind of stuff. And she had, she couldn't see very well. 
But we had a stool in that room, and she would get on it and sit in front of the window and watch the sunsets because she could see the colors. And then she had asked for last rites when she passed. It matters entirely what the resident asks for, what sort of spiritual support we provide. And when I was over here one morning and the caregiver and I noticed that her breathing had gotten to the point where we felt that it was time. So I, I got my prayer book out and went in there and we started the, the ritual and, and the caregiver was holding her hand and she had been sleeping for a few days at this point, but she opened her eyes and listened to us saying the prayers for the first time in a couple of days, and she focused on us. You could see that she focused on us. And you can tell when a person's eyes are focused and when they aren't. And she listened to us say the prayers. When we got to the last amen, she closed her eyes and died. That was exactly what she wanted. It's not always so easy for people in Jane's situation to find the help they need. Here's Pilar describing why it can be difficult. One of the main things is that there are just not enough resources to support our unhoused neighbors, whether or not they're living with a serious illness. This includes palliative and hospice resources. There are limited charity funds that nonprofit hospice organizations can use to provide services to folks that don't have insurance. A lot of different services across housing and healthcare have huge wait lists. There are a few options for where someone experiencing homelessness can receive home-based palliative care or hospice services, which is why Rocky Mountain Refuge is so, so needed. And then sort of an, a secondary consequence to that is that the services that are available the folks that are working within those services are under tremendous strain because they are really needed. Another thing that has consistently come up is really the competing needs that unhoused folks are juggling on a daily basis. A lot of the times you'll hear about the difficulties in the healthcare system of caring for a patient who is experiencing homelessness. What I've been learning from the folks I've been talking to is that it's really hard to think about managing your appointments or taking your medications or picking up your medications or showing up somewhere when you're really fighting to survive on a daily basis. And there's so few services that actually will come to where somebody is rather than expecting someone to actually show up to a doctor's office or a different office. And so thinking about how do we make more services that are more of those mobile health services or mobile services that can actually meet someone where they're at our social services and our healthcare systems are very siloed. Uh, they are not good at talking to each other. And this becomes really complicated when you're trying to have good continuity of care and really coming up with a comprehensive care plan to support somebody who is experiencing homelessness, who has a serious illness. Another thing that's coming up is that we really, as a society and as social service and healthcare systems, we really have to contend with the distrust that there is in these systems and distrust that we have essentially created through really stigmatizing these folks. And so for somebody who has been abandoned and mistreated by a system for most of their lives or for the time that they've been experiencing homelessness, how can we then expect them to sort of put their lives 
in our hands if something like palliative care or hospice becomes something that they could potentially benefit from. To better understand what healthcare workers serving the unhoused are seeing, we spoke to Brooklyn, a community nurse who has worked in healthcare for the past 10 years and primarily serves the unhoused and uninsured in the Denver metro area. Most of my patients are largely unhoused. Typically, I'm seeing patients out in the community, so at shelters. I see them in the hospitals, in the clinics, wherever I can meet them. This patient population has long-term, very chronic health conditions. And, you know, when we look at this patient population from a healthcare perspective, we immediately know that these patients are going to be far sicker than kind of normal everyday patients because they aren't able to access care. So they'll either come in and be very acutely ill, meaning that they'll end up in the emergency department and admit it to the hospital. They may end up having very late stage diagnoses, such as cancer, that's like stage four, or they'll come in and just have a very fast progression with their chronic illness. As I think most people can imagine, there are a lot of barriers for our patients to get care in any and all capacities. It's not just about, hey, this patient is uninsured, or hey, this patient has Medicaid, they can't afford their medications. It's also down to the very basics that like you and I don't really think about because we have access to a car. We don't have to worry about how we're getting to and from our doctor's offices. We get text message reminders of our appointment dates, and some of my patients don't have phones. As a matter of fact, a lot of them don't. And in not having phones, we can't, you know, call them and say, hey, your appointment time has changed, or hey, I want to make sure you're coming to this appointment at this time. Another barrier that you really know about unless you work with this population is that they have been made to feel like they are so unimportant and that they just should cease to exist that even the idea of accessing health care or getting any sort of help doesn't seem feasible. People don't want to trust the health care system that's going to tell them, hey, man, that's really hard that you live on the streets. That's really bad for your health. You should fix that. Like these people aren't choosing to remain in situations not access help. It's they physically can't get there. And they also have some mental challenges and barriers to wanting to even access that in the first place if they know they're not going to get the full circle care that they need. Brooklyn shared that for her unhoused patients, seeking medical care at any stage can be difficult. People without homes must leave or throw away all of their belongings when they're admitted to the hospital. They may also have to leave a pet behind. If they've been living in a car or an RV, there's a lot of stress related to their car being towed, and they can't afford to pay the fines to get their vehicle back. There are constant barriers to the unhoused population receiving care. When our patients are seeking care, it's because they are very, very sick, like to the point of not being able to survive on the streets on their own. So when they come in, we will incidentally find these very widespread high acuity illnesses. So, you know, it's not uncommon for me to get a referral for a patient who has just been diagnosed with stage four cancer, you know, has been living on the street, had no idea that this was going on. 
But we also understand as healthcare providers that our ability to treat and have good options and outcomes for these patients are very limited. It's really unfortunate because even things, you know, that people can live years and years with, such as HIV, you know, these patients aren't accessing the medications regularly and their lifetime is limited directly by their inability to seek care in whatever avenue that looks like. That's the hardest part of this job. There, There is nowhere to go. When we think of our unhoused neighbors, when you're driving home and you're seeing an encampment that you know, you're kind of frustrated with is encroaching more on your territory, on your space. I want you to look at every single one of those individuals and say, okay, where do these people go to be sick? Where do these people go to die? Because what I can tell you is that there is no answer. Even working for local hospitals, you know, if if you don't have insurance and you're not sick enough to stay in the hospital, you simply do not stay in the hospital. You and I would have access to hospice or palliative care to help us be comfortable and have around-the-clock care as we pass versus my patients who return to the street or go back to a large shelter where they will not have peace. They will be in pain and they may pass in the community. They may pass away on their way seeking care again. Brooklyn observed that frequently healthcare professionals don't know how to treat people who live on the streets. The standard approach simply doesn't work for the challenges that homeless patients face, and there's a lack of willingness to be creative. It's been incredibly difficult to sit beside my patients because I think the system of healthcare wants to fit every single person into some sort of box. The science of healthcare is that, hey, we learned that XYZ works for our patients. And so it simply must work for every single person. And that's not the case. We don't take into the complexities of transportation, trust, past trauma that doesn't, you know, particularly make somebody want to be touched in any sort of way. My experience sitting along with my patients is that they're treated very differently. When a patient comes in and is unhoused and has these very complex needs, the team taking care of the patient is far less likely to offer extensive and very like intense treatment because they don't expect the patient to be able to show up every single day for radiation. They don't expect them to survive the surgical procedures that are needed. And so it's not just about access to care So what will it take to solve this problem and make it easier for the unhoused to get the health care and hospice care they need? One of the biggest things is moving towards a culture of caring more and supporting our community members, no matter what they're going through. And I think as a society, we tend to be really individualistic and we all suffer for it. I think if our overall narrative changed and folks experiencing homelessness were more humanized, maybe this would be more of a priority for everybody. I'd also like to see more of an acknowledgement that this is really a structure problem. This is really a systems problem. Really thinking about how then do we focus on removing these structural barriers that will make homelessness less common and short-lived. Thank you for staying with us as we talked about this critical topic. We wanted to let you know that since the taping of the interviews with Brother JP and Pilar, 
the Rocky Mountain Refuge had to close its doors due to a lack of funding. This care is critical, and no one else here in Denver is providing it. If you feel compelled, we urge you to consider donating to the Rocky Mountain Refuge and help them reopen their doors. Links to the Rocky Mountain Refuge and information on this topic can be found in the show notes and on our website. Thanks again for being with us. Join us next time as we talk about veteran homelessness and an innovative solution to solving the challenge that we may be able to apply to the larger issue of homelessness. I was in the National Guard in the U.S. Army. I was a combat engineer. I was put out in 89. I had some medical issues. I was a truck driver. I became sick in February, and the doctor wouldn't allow me to continue driving at the time because of my health and was end up being my wife and dog and I were abandoned here in Denver. And we were living in the tractor trailer and they just told us to get the stuff out and take care. And I had three weeks of insurance left and about six months of health issues. <laughs> I was in denial that things were getting bad. And then finally I recognized that things are going from bad to we have nowhere to go and nowhere to, no help, nothing to pay for it and no one to help us. I just called that number for the Homeless Coalition and they referred me to the veterans and started that process. The Elevated Denver Podcast is produced by Leanne Morrison, Myra Nagy, and Jonna Flood. Narration brought to you by me, Nathan Havey. Editing, sound design, and music are composed and provided by Jesse Boynton. Recording and production provided by the Olympic Recording Studio. If you found this episode interesting and would like to learn more about our work, please visit us at elevateddenver.co. And don't forget to let others in the community know about this podcast. It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver. Denver.